As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. <sighs> Tommy Vitor. <laughs> <laughs> on today's pod, Lovett talks with our old boss, David Pluff, about what to look for on Super Tuesday. Actually, was he ever your boss? Um, oh, no, because he he came to the White House after you left. He's so America's boss. He, honestly, he's though, I, I still report to him. Okay, good. <laughs> he's got a book coming out. Yeah, he does. Two books. Two books. Amazing. It's a lot of work. I can barely read tweets. We'll also break down the results of the South Carolina primary, which has reshaped the Democratic race by reviving Joe Biden's candidacy and ending the campaigns of Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, and Tom Steyer. And we'll spend some time on President Trump's response to the coronavirus, which has been just as terrifying as you would expect. Love it. How was the show this week? Great love it or leave it with Fortune Femster and Moshe Kasher. I also told the story of... uh, camp owner who tried to tell my mom I was gay, but uh, she did not figure it out. Wait, what? Uh, I was having a rough summer, and I wasn't really enjoying basketball. Yeah. <laughs> and he said uh, uh, to my mother, Fran, for boys like your son, that's why we do the musicals. <laughs> what? Is this like another version of uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Yeah. <laughs> well, I do believe Marvelous Mrs. Maisel could have t- taken place at Camp Starlight. Anyway, continue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, we have some exciting news. We have a brand new crooked podcast called Hall of Shame. Uh, yeah, that's right. Clap. Each week, Rachel Bonetta of Fox Sports and comedy writer Rechna Freckbaum will break down some of the craziest scandals in sports history, talk about why these stories matter and why they're still relevant today. You can check out Hall of Shame's trailer and subscribe to the show now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. I listened to the first episode and I didn't want to get out of my car until it was over. Um, you're going to really like it. Yeah, I listen to two of them. They're hilarious, and they're interesting stories that you may or may not know. Yeah. You don't have to be a sports fan to like this no, show. No, you probably don't know. Yeah. Do you I... like funny people telling interesting stories? Right. Check it out. You're going to love it. Finally, tomorrow is Super Tuesday, as you all know. <laughs> and if you don't want to watch all the people on cable news say the same thing for 10 hours in a row, come watch us do it. <laughs> <laughs> we... I... <laughs> that is... Very self-aware. Fuck, I watched like eight hours of cable news on Saturday. Brutal. I Brutal. I'll be honest, I was hungover and feeling terrible and didn't want to leave my house, but it was awful. It was so redundant. Except for the people we like on cable. We won't tell yeah, you which ones. But there's some, people, it was, there's some people who are really good to listen to. It was to. great to see Gibbs. It was great to see Pluff out there and Axe. But like, 
it's just amazing like how many hours in a row you hear that turnout is important. <laughs> anyway, uh, come watch us because we've decided to do a live stream um, and you can watch the results with us starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on youtube.com slash crooked media. Love it. Tommy, Dan, me, and Akilah and Gideon from What A Day and some special guests. Yeah. We're going to have a, a Steve Kornacki like figure. Yeah. Let's just let's just leave it at that. We'll just leave it at that, too. Let's leave it at that. But anyway, you're going to want to <laughs> tune in. YouTube.com slash Crooked Media. Okay. Let's get to the news. There was no malarkey as far as the eye could see on Saturday night as Vice President Joe Biden won his first primary in the biggest state yet to vote by the biggest margin we've seen so far. A 28-point victory over Bernie Sanders in South Carolina, where the turnout uh, has now beaten the record set in 2008 in the primary. With all precincts reporting, it's Biden at 48.4%, Bernie at 19.9%, Tom Steyer at 11.3%, Pete at 8.2%, Warren at 7.1%, and Amy Klobuchar at 3.1%. The estimated split of the state's 54 delegates will be 39 for Biden and 15 for Bernie, which means Biden is now just six delegates behind Bernie in the overall count. In his victory speech, the former vice president said that South Carolina, quote, launched our campaign on the path to defeating Donald Trump and made the most forceful case yet for his candidacy. Let's take a listen. And the decisions Democrats make all across America in the next few days will determine what this party stands for, what we believe, and what will get done. If Democrats nominate me, I believe we can beat Donald Trump. Keep Nancy Pelosi in the House of Representatives as Speaker and take back the United States Senate. So join us. My fellow Democrats across America, join us. If Democrats want to nominate someone who will build on Obamacare, not scrap it, take take on the NRA and gun manufacturers, not protect them. Stand up and give the poor a fighting chance for the middle class get restored not raise their taxes and make keep the promises we make, then join us. And if the Democrats want a nominee who's a Democrat, a lifelong Democrat, a proud Democrat, an Obama-Biden Democrat, Join us. Uh, guys, after New Hampshire, Joe Biden's polling average over Bernie Sanders in South Carolina was four points. Uh, he was outspent on television 40 to one, out organized, and won the state by 28 points. What do you think happened? I think Jim Clyburn's endorsement was huge. I think 49% of voters said it was an important factor in their decision. I've never seen anything like that. <laughs> I, I also do think one, one thing we've seen throughout this primary is that when a a front runner emerges, there is a buyer's remorse that sort of sets in, uh, whether it's uh, what happened to Warren uh, uh, late last year, uh, whether it's uh, uh, Pete and uh, and Amy rising in New Hampshire. Uh, and now I think with Biden in South Carolina, I think you see, um, I think you see a desire to have an alternative. And 
you know, how that plays out outside of a state that is as favorable to Biden as South Carolina, I don't think anybody knows. Yeah, I mean, you really just can't stress enough uh, how big a win this was. It was an overwhelming victory for Biden. And like John said, he was down to two or three points in some polls uh, after getting crushed in New Hampshire. There was a lot of talk out of Bernie's camp uh, after the Nevada results that they were going to go all in with a big ad buy in South Carolina and really make a play uh, there. And Biden fought it off and, and had an enormous victory. The Clyburn endorsement is, I think, a unique endorsement in maybe all of politics. It's, tr- it's hard to imagine another person endorsing a candidate. And then you get exit polls where 27% of voters said the endorsement was the most important factor in their candidate choice. That's astounding. That's yeah. a level of respect for an elected official that maybe doesn't exist anywhere else. Yeah. Um, very impressive. But also, like, Joe Biden ran a great campaign over the course of that last week. You know, he had that incredibly, he had a strong debate. He had that powerful emotional moment uh, in his CNN town hall when he was talking about loss uh, in his personal life and loss in South Carolina. And he brought that theme into the speech, which we'll talk about later. But I mean, Joe Biden needs to campaign like he did the last week going forward. Yeah. You know, let's just be honest. His campaign leading up to Iowa and New Hampshire was bad. They ran a bad race until then. And something caught hold inside of him this week and he just kicked ass. Yeah, I think a few things um, off what Lovett said. There has been this sort of search for uh, an alternative to Bernie Sanders. Or originally, it wasn't even an alternative specifically to Bernie Sanders, but just someone who could basically lead the center left of the Democratic Party. And I think particularly um, college-educated voters, mostly white, uh, who pay a lot of attention to politics, have gone back and forth you know, very fluidly over the course of the primary. They liked Pete. They liked Warren. Uh, Amy got a surge in New Hampshire, right? And then it's just, they've gone back mm-hmm. and forth between all these candidates. They, when Bloomberg first uh, entered the race before he took the debate stage, people were curious about Bloomberg, right? And I think this started in Nevada, right? A, and and it, it didn't seem as apparent at first, but a strong second in Nevada. And Bernie still won by a lot, but the distance between Biden and the rest of the field in Nevada was significant. And it also showed that Joe Biden could do well in a diverse electorate and that no other candidate in the race but Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders could do well in a diverse electorate. Um, And so that started with Nevada. And then you had the debate. You had the focus on Bernie. You had a real concern that, um, you know, Bernie Sanders, despite polling, shows that he's competitive with Trump. That, you know, once, you know, Dan's talked about this, once more people found out that he's a democratic socialist, which a lot of people don't know, that it could be trouble for him. And so all of this sort of swirling in that last week probably moved people to Biden. And of course, you know, um, he won people who decided in the last couple of days by a significant amount. And a lot of people decided in the last couple of days. I also think the Jim Clyburn endorsement, obviously, it's significant for all the ways in which Jim Clyburn is is significant in South Carolina. But there's also um, everyone's been paying attention. Everyone's been watching this race. And what we've seen is as we've gotten closer and closer to Election Day, Biden's has done really poorly. That's what happened to him in Iowa. That's what happened to him in New Hampshire. And Jim Clyburn coming out there and saying, I'm voting for Joe Biden and I want you to vote for Joe Biden is somewhat of incredible stature saying, I know how scared you are. I know you don't know who's right. I know, you know, especially black people in South Carolina, just how bad shit can get. And I'm pushing my chips forward for Biden because I think this is the best and safest place for us to uh, rally behind a candidate to make sure we have someone who can defeat Donald Trump. And I think the power of that probably will have impact outside of 
of South Carolina because I think there's probably a lot of people feeling the same way. There's also, I think, some air cover from uh, Joe Biden's super PAC, which took that endorsement, put it in the mail piece, put it on radio ads and blasted it into every household uh, of African-American voters. I mean, we're also into the part of the campaign where we spend, us included, so much time talking about momentum and who's up and who's down. And then all along, the demographics in South Carolina, a heavy African-American electorate, was seen as a strength for Joe Biden. And we may just be at the place where demographics becomes destiny, and he continues to do well in states like South Carolina with a larger African-American population, or southern states with a more moderate vote. But it's funny because the narrative about Joe Biden that we all know was like Scranton Joe, the guy who you send it to Pennsylvania and, and appeal to Midwestern voters. We haven't had a chance to see that play out yet. Because Michigan is March 10th, Wisconsin's April 7th, Pennsylvania is April 28th. But that will be a key test for him because I think that speaks to electability in a different way. Yeah. And I want to dig into the demographics here, too, in the exit polling, because I think it's important to understand that Joe Biden didn't just win South Carolina, but he won so many different groups yeah. by such a large margin, which could portend quite a bit for the future. And the only um, age he lost was 17 to 29. Right. right? And white voters, right? White voters, right? He and Bernie basically won seventeen to twenty-nine year old black voters by two points, but that's pretty good to tie that. Um, so black voters made up fifty-six percent of the electorate. He won them by forty-four points. He won white voters by ten points. He won every age group, as we just said. Um, even in the small number of Latino-heavy precincts, um, uh, he beat Bernie by nineteen points. Mm-hmm. Biden won independents by twelve points. Moderate and conservative voters by forty points. Self-identified liberal voters by 14 points, Biden won. And the 48% of primary voters who support Medicare for all, Biden won by 16 points. Healthcare was the number one issue for voters, and Biden won those voters by 28 points. And he also won the 19% of first-time primary voters by 7 points. This is, a, this is worth talking about because this happened in New Hampshire as well, where Pete basically tied Bernie among first-time voters in New Hampshire. And now Joe Biden won them by a significant margin in South Carolina. That is a real challenge for Bernie Sanders moving forward because the crux of his argument is that he can bring in new voters to the electorate um, and and win them by a large margin. And while Bernie is certainly bringing in his share of first-time voters in all these contests that we've seen, for Biden to win them in South Carolina and Pete to almost win them in New Hampshire, it's, you know, it says a lot. Yeah, I mean, this is something... I talked about with Pluff briefly. You know, Bernie has shown that he can excite millions of people to donate to his campaign, to volunteer to his campaign, but that has not yet translated in any significant way into an increase in turnout, which you really want to see because if you, you know, not just because you want Bernie to win, but you want Bernie's case to be to win. You want him to be accurate in what he is saying about his ability to turn out uh, unlikely voters. And that said, you know, you can't translate what happens in a primary to what will happen in a general, but it is just a reason to, you know, have a concern. It's also interesting to watch how the makeup of the primary electorate changes over the course of these states. I mean, Iowa was overwhelmingly white, but it was also just overwhelmingly a bunch of pundits, right, who were worried about electability. Peter Hamby uh, has written uh, about this for Vanity Fair, has been beating the drum on how the typical South Carolina Democratic primary voter in 2016 was an African-American woman without a college degree making 50000 a year who considers herself moderate to slightly liberal and goes to church weekly, cares about the economy, cares about health care. Like, that is is that is your average voter probably across the country in a lot of ways and we're i think we're moving out of hopefully the electability obsession season and can get to a bigger message that's about the future of the country i do think that um we'll have to watch going forward out of south carolina is 
is Joe Biden's win in South Carolina due to demographics or is it geographic, right? And yeah. so do uh, the, the voters in South Carolina can probably be expected to perform similarly in the other southern states that we're going to see tomorrow. But as you go on to other states, Michigan, Missouri, Illinois, Arizona, some states like that, um, black voters act differently in different states. Latino voters act differently in different states and white voters act differently in different states as well. And so you have to, you know, but I I do want to say one thing about the black vote in South Carolina, too, because I've seen a lot of pundits talk about how black voters tend to be more pragmatic, more focused on electability. There was a question in the exit poll. They said, which candidate better understands the concerns of racial and ethnic minorities? And Joe Biden won that 45% said Joe Biden is the candidate who best understands the problems and concerns of racial and ethnic minorities. Bernie Sanders was next to 20%. That really tells you a lot about Joe Biden's connection to black voters that goes beyond just simple electability concerns. And I think, you know, it's also sometimes... Uh, you know, just saying that black voters only care about uh, electability is is really selling them <laughs> selling them short because they you know Joe Biden's been sort of undersold this whole campaign too but clearly in South Carolina there was a real connection that both black and white voters felt with Joe Biden and mm-hmm. he did something well and that that was the Clyburn endorsement as well. Um, one thing on turnout, so turnout was up by um, a quarter over uh, twenty sixteen black voters. And then it doubled among white, college-educated suburban voters. Um, Biden has been struggling with this last group, that this is the group that has gone back and forth between Pete, Warren, Amy, and, mm-hmm. and Biden and everyone else. If they act like they did in South Carolina and other places, things could turn very quickly. Because yep. again, we have seen that the turnout surges in the 2018 midterms and now in the primaries. This was true in Iowa. This was true in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And this is now true in South Carolina are around these suburban areas with mostly college-educated white voters. Shout out primaries over caucuses again, by the way. (laughs) I mean... And like, you know what? Pete, we'll talk about later, got screwed by the Iowa caucus results. Bernie, I think, was seen early as a winner in Nevada, but not as definitively as Biden won as early. I mean, it's just... it's. This process, man, we got to formalize some things. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit more about Bernie, uh, who had really gone in for the kill in South Carolina with a lot of ad spending in the final week. Uh, it didn't work. He gave a speech congratulating Biden um, while pushing back on, on on Biden's case for the presidency. Uh, let's let's listen. In my view, old fashioned politics, the same old, same old type of politics that doesn't excite anybody, that doesn't energize anybody. That is not going to be the campaign that beats Trump. In order to beat Trump, what we are going to have to do is speak to millions of working class people who today are working two or three jobs. They're worried about their kids. They're worried about their retirement. They can't afford health care. And they are saying, who cares about me? Who is worried about me? I've seen candidates run to billionaires' homes to raise money. Is anybody worrying about me and my kids? And our job together is to reach out to those working people and say, you know what? We do care about you. Join us. Come on into our movement. Uh, Guys, what does Bernie's performance in South Carolina tell us about his challenges going forward? I mean, I think it signals a challenge with African-American voters, and it, it signals a challenge with the suburban voters you were just talking about that made the difference in a lot of these districts in 2018. I don't want to overread it, 
because when you win overwhelmingly in a state, it will make every uh, thinner sliced breakdown of the electorate look like you're you're getting punished there as well. And, and we had the opposite conversation in Nevada. Exactly. Uh, and he has strength with Latino voters. But, you know, it, it, it seems to speak to the fact that, and this should not surprise anyone, that a more moderate electorate is likely to be less supportive of Bernie in a primary. Right. And I also think, look, his favorability rating in uh, in the exit poll was 43-51. Uh, the only two candidates behind him were Amy Klobuchar and, by the way, Mike Bloomberg's favorability. Brutal. 2666 among a Democratic electorate in South Carolina. What are you doing, man? Going to need, <laughs> need some more ads. Um, but look, that is, that is you know, Bernie's had an incredibly high favorability ratings in national polls um, in the Democratic Party at the highest of the field in many polls. And so it was sort of interesting to see that in South Carolina. Um, I think his challenge is he has not been able to expand beyond his current coalition um, in a primary setting. Right. So caucus, it's tough to judge Nevada. and It's tough to judge Iowa because there's so few voters that participate in a caucus um, in general. But in the two primaries we've seen so far, he has basically hit the his his traditional ceiling, as they call it. Right. And so the, the question is, and look, in South Carolina, he spent a lot of money and not just money on the air, a lot of time on the ground since 2016, trying to expand his vote among yep. the black electorate and with moderate whites you know, to no good end. Now, we could be sitting here Wednesday and he'll have these giant victories in California and in Massachusetts and some other places. And uh, and perhaps we'll see something different. But if I were the Sanders campaign, I wouldn't just look at it as, well, this is a good state for Joe Biden. We should move on. There are some cha- challenges for Bernie Sanders now in expanding this co- coalition that we have seen in a number of states that I think he probably has to work on. Um the good thing is he does have cash, $46 million raised in February. That's incredible. <laughs> Although uh, I think Dan was looking up what Obama raised after uh, in February of 2008. I think it was closer to like $53 million. Yeah. So, but still, I mean, when you're outstripping your opponents like that, it's incredible. Uh, let's talk about the other candidates, starting with the two who dropped out. Um, the first to drop out was Tom Steyer, who spent $160 million to get zero delegates from four states. Uh, w- guys, what did we learn uh, from Tom Steyer's experiment here? What did we learn? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's a yeah. No, you know, I mean, a billionaire came in, dropped 160 million dollars, and got zero delegates. delegates. What's the what's the lesson? <laughs> that it takes more than money. Yeah, obviously. You know, I think I think Tom Starr had a lot of problems uh, with you know his campaign. Uh, you know, beyond just the fact that he was sort of buying a ticket uh, uh, to the race. You know, he at some points would stake out this sort of progressive uh, uh, vision, uh, which I think competed with. Uh, Elizabeth Warren and certainly with Bernie Sanders, you know, if you want the most progressive person, there was a different option. At times, he tried to stake out a more kind of pragmatic business, moderate uh, 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 role for himself. But of course, that lane was very busy with, uh, um, you know, Biden and Buttigieg and and Amy and and others that came and went while Tom Steyer was still there and competed with, with those there. And so, you know, he struggled to identify why exactly he was the best person to be the nominee. And having failed to do that, uh, he had no real role in the race. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, I respect the way Tom Steyer ran his campaign. He did not get up on that stage and beat the shit out of a bunch of Democrats. He was trying to advance progressive issues from climate to criminal justice reform to you name it. It's incredibly hard to run for president, even if you're a billionaire. Uh, Most people are going to lose. Most people um, probably shouldn't run, (laughs) right? Because Because ultimately, it's an incredibly difficult task. I think that, you know... This any other year he might have had a little better chance. I just don't think that it was 
the easiest year to come out of nowhere and introduce yourself to a nation and, and ask them to put their trust in you to win that election. Yeah, I think the lesson is, you know, money can certainly buy you attention, but then the rest is up to you once yeah. the spotlight's on yeah. you, once you once people are watching those ads. Um, you need a message. And I remember all of us saying when Tom Steyer got in the race that the reason that we, you know, sort of liked him is his message sounded a lot like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, right? Like he's a very, he's a progressive guy and a progressive message. But then the question is, okay, well, why you and not them? And um, look, there could have been a case for why him and not them, but he didn't really make it. Yeah. And that's sort of the story we can go from, from Beto to Kamala to Cory Booker. Again, the story in this race was in a very crowded field, which is what we had. It is even more important to set yourself apart when you do not have sky high name ID like probably the final two candidates in this race, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And if you were going to be a newcomer at this time, when Donald Trump is president, sucking up a lot of oxygen, everyone knows Joe Biden and everyone knows Bernie Sanders, to get that attention, your message and why you differentiated yourself from the rest of the field had to be super sharp. It's pretty amazing. You know, uh, this long, long primary, who are the right now four standing? The four people who were most well known before the whole thing began. That's Bloom- right. Bloomberg, yeah. Warren, Bernie and Biden. That's right. So the biggest announcement over the last couple of days was from Pete Buttigieg, who ended his campaign on Sunday night. The campaign had reportedly run out of money ahead of Super Tuesday, where they were having a tough time finding states to win. Uh, and Pete basically said that he wanted to step aside so that the center-left candidate could take on Bernie Sanders. Uh, he did not explicitly endorse Joe Biden at the time, but right before we recorded, there's news breaking that he will. Um, here's part of his speech on Sunday night. We cannot afford to miss this moment. With every passing day, I am more and more convinced that the only way we will defeat Trump and Trumpism is with a new politics that gathers people together. We need leadership to heal a divided nation, not drive us further apart. We need a broad-based agenda that can truly deliver for the American people, not one that gets lost in ideology. We need an approach strong enough not only to win the White House, but to hold the House, win the Senate, and send Mitch McConnell into retirement. And that broad and inclusive politics, that is the politics that we have attempted to model through this campaign. That, I believe, is the way forward for our eventual nominee. Uh, what did you guys think of Pete's decision? I think it makes sense, you know, where he was. You know, we, we had talked about this. He needed to demonstrate that he could appeal to the base of the Democratic Party in South Carolina, and he just wasn't able to deliver on that, and that made it really hard to argue for why he should stay in the race. Um, you know, I think you see in that speech, I think, Honestly, I think you saw it in Chaston's speech and then Mayor Pete's speech. I think you Chastin saw Chaston gave a, a very beautiful, moving speech, I thought. Uh, absolutely. It was a beautiful and moving speech. And I think even in what Pete's saying, I think you see his strengths and his weaknesses and, and sort of, you know, why a gay mayor from South Bend, Indiana was able to outlast so many more seasoned politicians. I think he's an incredibly smart person. I think he's an incredibly strategic and thoughtful person about why he was in this race and what he brought to this race. Um, at the same time, I think what you heard in there is, I think, a lot of rhetoric and a lot of kind of talking points that made it hard to really get to know what was really driving his campaign, especially once uh, uh, he started sort of shifting and trying to take on Bernie as the race went on. But that said, you know, I was so moved by Chastin. It's a classic case of seeing someone you like a lot give a speech about how much they love and believe in the person they're with that tells you maybe Pete is a little bit stiff 
and maybe he's not always the most open about who he is. But in in Chaston's speech, I think you saw why uh, Pete was such a strong candidate and why it did matter that we had a gay candidate make it this far in this race. Yeah, I mean, it's historic, you know, and, and he won Iowa and no one can ever take that away from him except the Iowa Democratic Party <laughs> tried, uh, which is truly unfair, you know, in the in the tail of the tape here. But, you know, that aside, um, I believe what Pete said about, you know, wanting to sort of clear the moderate lane to go against Sanders. I also think this is a decision that was born out of necessity. I imagine mm-hmm. fundraising is very hard when you pull out the spreadsheet and look at the map and try to decide where you'll get delegates. There weren't a lot of options. I agree with you guys. A Chaston speech really choked me up. Okay. Um, Pete also, when he talked about his father and when he talked about, you know, a, a young kid who might not think that there was a place in politics for him if he or she were gay, uh, that is an incredibly powerful, moving thing. Um, you know, Pete raised a hundred million dollars. He was the mayor of South Bend. He raised a hundred million dollars, younger than us, uh, yeah. or me at least, um, me which too. is remarkable. And you know, I think he will. Cle- he clearly is an incredibly talented person. He's very smart. He got better and better and better in debates and interviews as he went along. It was impressive to watch. I did feel the same way as you did. Love it at the end. Like I would love to see Pete just like grab the mic out of the out of the thing and say fuck it and just let rip on what he really thinks but that maybe that's not who he is it yeah, yeah. Be, and like who the real him is. i think that is yeah. the, i think who we saw is the real pete i think that's yeah. that's who he is and like look pete got a ton of shit online and we have criticized him at times too but i think it's 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 worth stopping and just you know it, it is amazing that a 37 now 38 year old mayor from South Bend, Indiana, in a field that was this crowded, that we were just talking about how hard it is to get attention with this many big names, rocketed to the top of the Democratic field, won the Iowa caucuses, um, the first openly gay candidate to win a primary. Um, that is a huge accomplishment. And by the way, we all we we talk all the time on the show about you know candidates who are inspiring people. Pete inspired a lot of people. A lot of people were passionately inspired by his candidacy. And that is not nothing. I also think, by the way, that Pete's message is a message that probably fits not only the Democratic electorate, but the general electorate maybe better than anyone else's. Mm-hmm. And if I were Joe Biden and Joe Biden's team, I would look at all Pete's speeches <laughs> and Pete's message. And I would think about how to making sure that, that make sure that was my message. In fairness to the Biden people, that's a lot of Biden's message anyway. But sometimes Pete's is even sharper. And in... in uh... For any Pete fans out there, uh, take solace in knowing that he could run for president every four years until 2060, and that would be the year he would be Bernie Sanders' age. That is an incredible stat. Just <laughs> incredible. And the fact that Donald Trump is now the youngest male in the race is a <laughs> horrifying stat, but also relevant. Um, yeah, I mean, to your point, like it, it does seem like I think Pete is planning to, about to, has announced he's going to endorse Joe Biden. It's more likely, though that his support gets sort of partially distributed to a bunch of people because voters are complicated. Um, 538 seems to think that Pete dropping out will hurt Bernie because some of his votes will go to Warren and Bloomberg and others who are just at the threshold of 15% viability and seeking delegates. I would just say to all of the campaigns out there, or all supporters of all campaigns, if you want Pete's supporters, maybe now is not the time to publish your uh, mocking high hope stance on Instagram or Twitter (laughs) or whatever. Like, you know, treat people like human beings. Politics is pretty basic. If someone's a dick to you, they're probably not going to come to your side later on when you need them. Uh, movements are based on addition. That's just <laughs> yeah. fucking basics. It's um, just so childish, but whatever. Um, so just as we were about to record, Amy Klobuchar dropped out uh, and endorsed Joe Biden. 
Um, why do we think she did this today? And and any final thoughts on Klobuchar's candidacy? I, I, I you know, I think she faced the same dilemma as a bunch of other candidates. There really was no path to her being the nominee. I wonder if they started getting a little nervous about her uh, not necessarily beating. I haven't. I don't know exactly where the polls have been in, in Minnesota, but if there was any concern about her not winning there, I think it would be smart for her to avoid that because that's her. That was her sort of claim uh, to the race or the Midwest. Uh, you know, she emerged as another almost center-left alternative to Bernie. Uh, she had a great debate performance that uh, pushed her uh, um, uh, to the top of the field, uh, probably denying Pete Buttigieg a victory in New Hampshire. Yeah. Uh, and uh, 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 given how she seems to feel about Pete, she can take some comfort in that, I guess. <laughs> yes. A- Amy Klobuchar conspired with the Iowa Democratic Party to both. Yeah. yeah, she, yeah, yeah. By the way, by the way, Cooey Bono, she made the app. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was Amy all along. Uh, uh, yeah, just Amy coding. <laughs> yeah, look, when, when Klobuchar got in, I don't remember how late it was in the process, but, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people had her down as, as being a top competitor. I didn't. It very I'll far. be honest. I She's didn't. a really good politician. Yeah. And, and that's true out on the stump where we saw her. Uh, that was obviously true in debates. I mean, she put in one of the best performances of the entire election in that New Hampshire debate. And I also think she reached people in a different way, like she was able to marry up a sort of moderate message with her values and her biography in a way that was impressive. I think impeachment probably stunted her growth in Iowa and ultimately uh, helped lead to the campaign ending faster than she wanted. But I think she leaves this um, having done very well for herself. Yeah, stature improved improved. for sure for Amy Klobuchar. Same with Pete, obviously. For sure. Also just say too, you know, as as we look at the field narrowing, one one reason I think we're talking about these candidates, whether it was moments for Kamala or Booker or Beto or Amy Klobuchar or Mayor Pete, at various moments throughout this campaign, each of these people has articulated the best argument for a center-left Democratic nominee. Um, and now that these people are gone, it is incumbent upon Joe Biden to finally make that argument and win that argument. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. So we have Super Tuesday tomorrow where the remaining candidates will compete are now Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and for the first time, Michael Bloomberg. This is it. We're down to we're down to four, guys. Um, and about a third of the total delegates are up for grabs with states like California, Texas, North Carolina, Massachusetts, and Virginia as the biggest prizes. Uh, as a reminder, we're going to cover the big day in full on Tuesday night during our live stream at YouTube.com slash media. But for now... Since we don't do predictions, let's talk scenarios. Um, what is a good, plausible scenario for Biden? And then let's talk more broadly about what does Biden have to do message-wise um, going forward now which in what could become a, a much narrower race here. Biden said in that speech, for all those who have been knocked down, counted out, and left behind, like this victory is for you. And that's, that's a bit of an electability message, but that's not the core of it, right? 
what what is unique about Joe Biden is and, and really makes him unlike almost any other politician is how much tragedy he's endured in his own life and the way he has taken that pain and used it to help other people. And we have all heard these stories because we've worked, we've worked with him. We've heard from friends who are giving tours to people who ran into Joe Biden in the hallway and he changed their life with a five minute conversation about loss uh, and truly moved people. And that has come out in special moments in this campaign. But the way he tied the story of his loss to what South Carolina experienced after the Mother Emanuel Church shooting and the progress that state then made to take down the Confederate flag felt to me perfectly suited for what has been a moment of trauma in our politics. And I think if he can make his bigger campaign about like healing and redemption and progress and decency and bringing people together, that's a bigger message than, hey, I can beat Trump or, hey, we don't want a revolution, we want evolution, or whatever the shit has been to date that actually draws people in and speaks to you on an emotional level. And I think that's why it felt so impressive. And it's not a surprise, by the way, that he was disciplined, he was on the prompter, it was a tight speech, it was like 18 minutes, maybe less than that. Yeah. It was really well executed by Biden and his campaign. Well, look, we, we've talked about this before. We know from all the research you know, whether it was the focus groups I did in the wilderness, polls we've seen separately, that there's sort of two major attacks on Trump that work, right? Trump is chaos and division and is tiring, exhausting people. And we just got to like get him out of here and, and sort of bring the country back together. And then there is Trump has been ineffective at dealing with any of the problems that really affect people's lives, their mm -hmm. health insurance, their cost of living, stuff like that. And, you know, Bernie's been really good on that message and Biden is is good on the other message. And I think the question for both of them is, can they sort of get into each other's lane message wise? Look, yeah. I, I thought that that speech in South Carolina was the best speech that Joe Biden has given in the entire campaign. And he if look, we have been pretty tough on Joe Biden here. And I think part of the reason that we've been tough on him is because we have all seen him be so much better than he has been through a lot of this campaign performance wise, whether it's at debates, whether it's in speeches. And I think that if Joe Biden can do what he did on Saturday night, not just winning in South Carolina, but the actual the message he delivered and the discipline with which he delivered it. And look, he was pretty good on the on the Sunday shows the next day, too. He had more energy. He was happier. If he can do that going forward, then he's going to be very competitive. Like we have been saying for a long time that Joe Biden, the happy warrior, needs to show up. Finally, Joe Biden, the happy warrior, showed up on Saturday night. And I think one of his biggest challenges in debates has been this defensiveness, right? Yeah. When people attack him. And, and this is going to be a challenge for him going forward because Bernie Sanders is going to come at him, as Bernie Sanders should, because he's trying to win. And if Joe Biden handles those attacks super defensive and angry, it's not going to go well. But if he seems like the happy warrior and he can brush it off, he will succeed, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I agree. I think it's the best speech Joe Biden has given in this campaign. It was the best articulation of an argument. I do think, you know, the part you played at the beginning of the show of, of his sort of hits on Bernie, um, you know, uh, you know, the gun hits, the he's not a Democrat hit. I feel like that's you know, I, I don't know if it's going to work or not for me. It's it means, to me, it's the least effective. Me but too. yeah, can I just say one thing on me that? Too. Because I, I was in this camp on the gun hit for a while, too. But in South Carolina and Jim Clyburn said this in an interview, um, he said people forget that the Mother Emanuel Church, you know, was there. The shooting happened and that not just to like liberal white voters, but to black voters, gun control 
is such an important issue to the Democratic electorate in South Carolina. And for Joe Biden to bring that up on the last week when Bernie Sanders hasn't had the best record on gun control actually was yeah. pretty powerful. I hadn't realized that. I don't doubt the gun hit. It was the he's not a Democrat. Oh, yeah, Democrat. I, I agree. I, I, also, I just want to say that about the gun thing. Oh, yeah. I, heard that. I, I don't I think that the Democrat hit is is is, I think, the smallest hit. I, yeah. I, I don't I'm not arguing whether or not the, the gun hit is effective or not. I do find it to be given where Bernie's position on guns is now. It's not the most it's not actually the biggest contrast between them as candidates. Well, but that, this is this is going to be a big thing going forward, right? Because I bet you anything, Bernie's going to go and start saying, you know, Joe Biden wanted to cut Medicare and Social Security in the past. And Biden's going to say he was bad on guns in the past. And it's yeah. going to be an argument about past positions. And the question is, how much do past positions that have changed matter to voters today? Yeah, no, I, I agree. The, the larger point I was getting at, though, is that I think when we get to the speech about loss... I was really like genuinely blown away by the speech because it was very strong, but it was also incredibly sophisticated in how it moved from, you know, he says plainly, you know, Donald Trump has terrible policies. His policies are very bad. But look at all the cruelty. Look at all the meanness. I don't believe in that kind of America. I believe in America where we treat each other better. And that led into his understanding of loss and pain and how he can sort of unite people who are going through terrible things. It was a the Biden whose candidacy is propelled by loss, propelled by trauma and pain as a source of purpose in his own life. I do think he seems to have been reluctant to make that a part of his stump. And I understand that. You know, I understand not wanting to go to that well for the purposes of an election. Well, especially and, and you know, he talks about an isolation. We've heard him in some of these town halls talk about it, but also connect it somehow to a message without seeming yeah, you yeah. Know, well, that manipulative. In, in the CNN town hall he did right before the South Carolina election, he was talking to, I believe, the pastor yep. from Mother Manual, and he was like talking about how Bo told him not to give up, and what he said is basically that staying in politics, staying engaged, and trying to, you know, continue this mission that's been his entire life's work is what kept him alive. Yeah, yeah. and that is a powerful, yeah. powerful message. There was also, by the way, in a you know, the, the return to sort of an electability message against Bernie, too, which wasn't just based on polls, which Biden had previously based it on. But you heard him talk about we've got to keep Nancy Pelosi as speaker. We've got to take back the Senate. Um, and I, I bet he will probably use that going forward, which, again, because polls go up and polls go down. But you're going to start to see sort of a flood of endorsements of people who have won in tough areas saying as they have in some of these uh, suburban districts and some of these uh, these red places and from 18 um, Joe Biden can win here because I had him come stump for me in 18 and he's the only one that I could that could come yeah. stump for me. Yeah. you're already seeing a bunch of them this morning yeah you're right and we should also though say that like I think part of the reason we're talking about Joe Biden's performance is right now Bernie Sanders is the front runner you know he is primed to get the most delegates on Super Tuesday uh, he is in a position to become the nominee if Joe Biden wants to have a chance at winning, the Joe Biden that showed up in South Carolina that did that speech is the only Joe Biden that could win. If he has an incredibly bad debate, and look, I yeah, if he has some more sort of rough moments, meandering moments, gaffes that make people once again remember their serious concerns about him as our standard bearer, uh, uh, we will very quickly forget about a South Carolina win. Yeah, I mean, I think you know we'll talk about Bernie in a second, but both candidates have challenges. Biden's is almost entirely performance-based. Uh, Bernie has other structural challenges, but Biden's is, is, is performance-based. And I know how hard, you know, I, I know some of his speechwriters, I know the people who work for him, and, like, it's going to be a challenge to get Joe Biden to um, go around to different events using a prompter and staying on the same stump. Uh, if they want him to win the nomination, it's it's, a, it's an important challenge to, uh, to meet. And if he is our nominee, 
it is the most important challenge. <laughs> and on top, you know, and also just like I just think of also the challenge of Joe Biden, who I think is a difficult uh, ship to steer. Yeah, <laughs> and knowing that in he the, needs to get it, he needs to get it. But also, you know, I, I I've seen at times they kind of put in his hands a kind of message of the day that he's trying to deliver, and he really struggles to kind of do that hit in the midst of his stump. I, I just think these are the kind of that is not a. That is just a challenge that the Joe Biden team has in trying to keep their candidate in the news cycle, delivering hits while recognizing that he has been, I think, not particularly live on the stump. So good plausible scenarios for Biden on Tuesday. Basically, he needs to keep it somewhat close in California. So Joe Biden needs to, A, cross the threshold of 15 percent in California, which in some polls he hadn't been doing, although there was one out today that had him up at 22. He probably needs to keep it very close or win in Texas. The way the delegates are split, a win or a narrow loss are almost the same in Texas com- compared when you look at all the delegates. And then, of course, he has to win the South. He has to win the Virginias, the North Carolinas, the Alabamas, the, all, all those all Tennessee. those places. Tennessee, right. Um, and then not get completely blown out in some of the states that, that Bernie's going to win. Um, which, you know, and, and which is all possible now that as people start consolidating and Amy and Pete drop out and, and start consolidating around a center-left candidate. Let's talk about Bernie. Let's talk about his challenges going forward and then what a good plausible scenario for him is. What does Bernie have to do now that he's, you know, potentially facing just a Joe Biden race going forward? Well, I mean, I I think that if Bernie comes out of Super Tuesday with a 300 or more pledge delegate lead, that begins to feel insurmountable for the other candidates. And it could happen. Steve Kornacki uh, over at NBC has been like playing with their delegate calculator thing, and he sort of figure out what he thought was a best case for Biden, which has Bernie ahead 590 to 529. And that's assuming Biden gets like 19% of the vote in California. Yeah. So Bernie is very well positioned here. Um, there is some national polling out today that shows uh, a pretty significant surge for Joe Biden, up seven points from pre-South Carolina. Uh, and it has Bernie's national support dipping 3% to 29%. But he's still in a strong place. And when you look at a state like California, where millions and millions of people have voted already, it's always a question of how much momentum matters, how much it's just demographics, how much of these votes are locked in anyway. Mm-hmm. So, right. We, for all we know, half of California has already cast their ballots. They think about, they think it'll be about 30 to 40%. People, um, because people held their ballots. Because a lot more people are, yeah. Which, which is, is another sign for, yeah. for Biden too, is that a lot of people in California have held back their ballots. God, you know what? In a fucking competitive primary like this, everyone should hold back their ballots. <laughs> yeah, but you know, this is why early votes are a real problem. Yeah, but you know, look, in California, I mean, Bernie could get more than half of the state's delegates, and that's a lot of delegates. There's 144 statewide and 271 they're divvied up by it's the biggest prize. District. It's a huge prize. And Bernie has done really deliberate, uh, impressive work in Latinx communities. He's been organizing since 2016, basically. And, uh, you know, if that bears out uh, and continues to pay off for him in California, it will, you know, speak to an electability argument. Yeah. I mean, you started this whole thing off by talking about demographics. You know, they haven't all fallen into place yet, but it does seem now like we have Bernie with real strength among Latino voters, with Biden competitive, Biden with real strength among black voters, with Bernie somewhat competitive, and the white voter has not really. Non-college whites, unique in a Democratic primary, 
um, you have both Bernie and Biden are pretty good with non-college white voters, though Bernie's probably done a little better with them so far. And then, of course, the college-educated white voter has been the one who's all over the fucking map, um, mm-hmm. going back and forth between all the candidates. And so we're likely to see that settle out after Super Tuesday. Um, what do you think about Bernie's sort of messaging challenges going forward? I mean, I, I thought in that speech clip that we played, um, ta- him talking about sort of the same old politics, you know, that's 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 probably his best uh, his best bet there. Yeah, I think it is. I don't know if this is what's best for the primary or simply what's best for Bernie as a potential nominee. The clip we played about him talking about just who's fighting for me, who's the person that's going to be on my side, or whether it's Bernie uh, saying, you know, think about someone in your life, think about a stranger, are you willing to fight for them? The positive part of that message, the hopeful part of that message to me, I I think he delivers it. I, I, you know, there is going to be, if Bernie Sanders is the Democratic nominee, there is going to be a incredible crush of bad faith, intellectual bullshit coming at us when it's us, that he is a radical, that he's an extremist, that he's just like Trump, all of this stuff that isn't true. And uh, I think it, it's just incumbent upon Bernie Sanders to be ready for that by beginning to answer it now if he is going to be the nominee. And I don't think that means standing off his edges. I just think that means, you know, speaking to the hope that he inspires in his supporters. And I think that he's doing that more. And I just I, I think that that's a really good thing. Yeah, I mean, Bernie's obviously a great messenger. I mean, look at what he's built since 2016. It's, it's one of the more astounding political stories uh, of this decade. Um, that said, sometimes I think where he, what he lacks is a willingness to connect on an emotional level. Like yeah. that 60 Minutes interview when they asked him about his mom getting sick and that sort of helping him turn to uh, making healthcare and, and Medicare for all the cause of his life. He didn't want to talk about that. And look, I don't know the reasons why. I'm not criticizing him. I'm just saying that when you tell those stories about yourself and your biography and then you link it to your policy views, I do think that's the most powerful way to get people to believe you. And now I don't think anyone looks at Bernie and thinks he doesn't mean what he said. I think few people are more consistent and authentic in terms of what they've thought over time, but it's still going to be about connecting to people that are still as crazy as it sounds hearing about him for the first time. And the reason that's so important, Tommy, is because the the perception of Bernie that is problematic that's out there, um, and it's just one, is that he is too far to the left. He is a socialist. He is too radical. He is too extreme uh, to be a, a mainstream party's nominee and to be the president of the United States. And it's not just about, because we've seen this with voters too, like voters don't just vote based on ideology, but Dan was saying this in one of our pods. It's more about an identity, right? And they did this to Barack Obama, too. Barack Obama is a foreign, Kenyan-born Muslim imposter who's going to take over the country, right? That's what we had to deal with. And the way that we fought back against that with Obama was about trying to, you know, project an identity that was fundamentally American in its story. And Bernie Sanders needs to reassure voters, both in the Democratic Party and writ large in the country, that his story and his message and his beliefs are fundamentally American as well. And I have seen him do that, right? There's the in 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 the in 2016 there was the Simon and Garfunkel America ad that was one of the yeah. most beautiful ads of the cycle back then. And you know, you can see it in some of his his rhetoric, the rhetoric you were talking about about fighting for someone else as much as you're willing to fight for yourself. That sort of positive uplifting message, he needs to lean on that more than just the anger. And I know that the left loves the anger, and I know that the anger is part of his message, and he shouldn't just get rid of it completely. But I think without changing his policies, his principles, don't want him to do anything like that, 
but the message itself has to be more unifying and uplifting, I think, or at least has yeah. to lean on that part. No, anger is good. Anger has motivated a lot of people uh, in the Trump era to, to protest and to knock doors and to vote, you know, in primaries they wouldn't have voted for. But I agree with you. In the general election, long term, you're going to need to bring people out for both reasons. And remember, it's always it's anger on behalf of other people, not anger at people like the Democratic establishment. Like, you know, that is only useful just to a point. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so a, a good plausible scenario for Bernie, like we said, is, you know, he he keeps people under the 15 percent threshold, other candidates in some of these states. He could get the delegate total out of California alone that he needs to almost have an insurmountable lead. Mm-hmm. And then he's on his way. So he needs to rack up a huge win in California, which, again, we're not going to know for probably weeks because <laughs> it's California. So everyone put away especially your, if you everyone's. Have- before you start your conspiracy <laughs> theories, just stop them now yeah. because California is going to take a couple weeks. That's important. And, and, and especially when we see so many public polls that show a f- like Bloomberg or Warren or even Biden just about the 15% threshold when that 15% threshold is so important. Yeah. We really may not know for days. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's talk about the two other candidates competing on Super Tuesday. Um, let's talk about Elizabeth Warren. So, um, you know, Warren had another disappointing finish in South Carolina. Um, she used her speech that night to take on Bernie. She said, this crisis demands more than a senator who has had good ideas, but whose 30-year track record shows he consistently calls for things he fails to get done and consistently opposes things he nevertheless fails to stop. Her toughest hit on Bernie yet. Yeah. Um, what do we think about Warren staying in? She, you know, her, her campaign manager released a memo saying she's sort of like in this to the convention. Um, she thinks she's going to get delegates in California and Massachusetts and a few other states by being over 15%, which is certainly possible. Um, but what do we think? You know, I say this as someone who admires Elizabeth Warren so much. Um, the one, one thing that has stuck with me is uh, after the Nevada caucus, uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren's campaign manager made the point that Biden uh, declining makes the race more fluid. That they're, you know, clearly their hope is to be three left standing. Uh, with a weak Biden uh, leaving more of an opening for Elizabeth Warren's candidacy, the stronger Joe Biden does, the harder it is to make that argument. Um, and I think uh, that's why I think we've left with this sort of convention path as a possibility. Now, I don't know how serious that is about continuing all the way to the convention to become the nominee. I don't know how much that about is keeping your options open now, how much of that is about leverage. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, I talked about this with with Pluff. It's a pretty tough argument. Yeah, I mean, she's got a very tough path. Um I think she thinks she could get delegates in a bunch of places. Like, you take the the argument at face value that, yes, I'm in this and I'm competing to the convention. She could win delegates in a bunch of precincts and have leverage to push policy views or whatever it is she cares about deeply. I also think that, you, of course, she has to say this. You can't signal to your voters, donors, staff that you might drop out, right? Yeah. Then there's blood in the water and everyone attacks you. So I, I kind of hate the period of time where everybody calls on other candidates to drop out because there's no downside to her competing, I don't think. I'm sure you could do the math and crunch numbers and figure out which candidates it helps and hurts. But I think it's fine for all these folks to stay in, mostly, uh, until you get to the debate stage. And I do think those debates need to start shrinking down to clarify exactly what the choice is. But I do think Warren has, in my opinion earned her right to compete on Super Tuesday. I think that is less so for Bloomberg because he has not competed in an election yet. Yeah, I think with Warren, she must be thinking, okay, I mean, Amy and Pete dropped out, right? It's down to 
uh, Biden and Bernie and Bloomberg and, and her. She wins a bunch of delegates on Super Tuesday, probably doesn't win a state, but maybe, maybe she wins Massachusetts and she wins. Maybe she crosses the 15 percent in California and she gets some delegates other places. Now we're going to have a debate after Super Tuesday. And she's probably thinking if I can be on stage as the alternative to these other two guys and maybe Bloomberg, if he's still in it, then, you know, she has more of a spotlight on her. And then yep. it's a long primary season and maybe things change now. Delegate wise, math wise, it is a very tough path because I don't think at this point, and I don't know for sure, but I think it's it's very, very tough math for her to come into Milwaukee as a pledged delegate leader. But I think that might not be the strategy because, you know, as as she said, even though we've been saying um, the pledged delegate leader should get the nomination, none of the other candidates except Bernie are saying that. <laughs> and uh, it's unexpected what happens in Milwaukee. And so what if you go into Milwaukee and there's no pledged delegate leader, which now looks very likely um, or more likely than it did last week, for sure, then, you know, maybe it's enough chaos. And if you've got a bunch of delegates, you're a player. I, I still it's still a hard argument for her to make because she's not going to have the most popular vote or the most pledged delegates. But I don't know. Maybe you stick around. And what does being a player mean? Is this a play to be vice president? Right, Is right. this a play? Could to be a bunch of different things. things. And, and, you know, also too, like. Elizabeth Warren has run an incredible campaign. She has put out uh, plans that have, I think, set the standard for democratic policymaking. She's excited a lot of organizers. Um, I think she has paid a price for being a woman. Uh, she's also paid a price for mistakes she's made in her race, but every single president of the United States has run a campaign that was imperfect. Um, so I understand staying in, and I, and I agree with Tommy. You know, it is a reality, you know, she is polling better nationally than she has in some of these early states. And she has not yet been to one of those states where she has those higher poll numbers. And it is an artifact of the process that we went from Iowa to New Hampshire, to Nevada to South Carolina, before getting to some of the places where she thought she would perform better. Um, she had an incredible debate in Nevada, when a lot of people had already voted. I mean, there's a lot of good reasons to say I should stay in this fight. And as a person who has built her campaign about being a fighter, uh, I understand and respect staying in the fight for all these people that got behind you for the maybe dwindling but still real chance of of doing well. And what about Mike Bloomberg, who's just rolling into Super Tuesday? Mike Bloomberg, who entered the race partly because he was concerned that Bernie Sanders would win the nomination and thought that Joe Biden didn't have what it takes to compete and 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 beat Bernie Sanders. And now there's a Biden resurgence. And here is Mike Bloomberg competing for the first time on Super Tuesday in any states after having spent, you know, uh, like half a billion dollars so far. Is that where we're at? Yeah, yeah we're heading towards six fifty. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, if he maybe if he hadn't gone to that debate and performed so terribly, we would be having a different conversation right now. But I think uh, his record, that performance, it caught up to him. It undercut his entire rationale. It showed how soft some of the numbers that had been inflated by his ad spend were. I have nothing bad to say about him. I just don't think that he has any rationale for staying in if the whole premise was Biden's not doing well and he's the only one who can win. So And I do and I do think to to voters out there, if you know, look, if you want Bernie Sanders to be the nominee, you should definitely vote for Bernie Sanders tomorrow. <laughs> um, if you don't then, um, look, there's cases to vote for Elizabeth Warren because she, um, if she's above the 15% threshold, um, you know, she sort of takes some delegates away from Bernie and, again, she can amass them herself. 
But and she cannot be the nominee if she's not if she doesn't get 15 percent in California. It starts right. to really become very difficult. To but imagine. if you're if you're trying to decide between a Joe Biden and a Mike Bloomberg, I do not know why you would vote for Mike Bloomberg. Uh, his 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 polling numbers are falling. Um, you you saw this favorability rating in South Carolina, 2266 among Democrats. And now in these general election matchup polls, he is at the bottom of the list in Democrats who are competitive against Donald Trump. And his whole case was electability. He has spent a lot of money. He, you know, it just it just hasn't worked out for him. And and, you know, Joe Biden is just in a much better position. There. I will say, too, you know, I was actually thinking uh, uh, when Howard Schultz said that he was going to run as an independent, uh, I, re- I wrote a piece about Howard Schultz and how wrong I thought it was to become a spoiler. And in the piece, I said, look at Mike Bloomberg considering running as a Democrat, even though it's a long shot, because he he has he recognizes that 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 that's the, the right thing to do in a yeah. race like this. You know, Mike Bloomberg, Tom Steyer. I don't want billionaires to be buying tickets to our debates. I, I don't think that that's the right way to, to, to elect a president. But that said, they entered our primary to be part of the big conversation that we were going to have together to choose a nominee. And I hope that the same thought process that led him to make that, I think, better decision than some others made leads him to recognize that uh, his place in this race uh, does not really make sense anymore. Yeah, I, was th- I think it would have been different, too, if he had decided to compete in even just South Carolina. <laughs> you know, like just one race where he had to actually get in there, have the conversation, have this debate that you're talking about earlier than just one performance one night. And, and on, one television, in South- yeah. on television. And then one in South Carolina, which doesn't tell you much. And then just a bunch of ads. Like just more Mike Bloomberg in the race would have given him, like we said with Warren, more of a right to just like stay in for the long haul. And he just, but yeah. it's been all an air war yeah. and a couple of debate performances. Mike Bloomberg, the candidate, did not rise to the occasion, and that's all that counted. It's, it's like so funny. Imagine if he had shown up and just sort of crushed it, been been a yeah. different person. He would be. He would have. Well, said, all these very nervous Democrats that were worried about you know electability more than anything else and wanted a center left candidate, mm-hmm. or in his case, a center candidate, um, might have gone to him. It turns <laughs> out the naked cowboy was staring at him in the mirror. <laughs> You know. Um, all right, let's end on a high note by talking about the coronavirus, which has now infected more than 90,000 people worldwide and killed 3,000. Here in the U.S., the official count is now 88 cases and two deaths, both older Americans with underlying health problems who lived in Washington state, where experts now believe the virus could have spread undetected for six weeks. Yikes. The Trump administration's response has been slow and confused at best, with one senior official telling The Washington Post, quote, it's complete chaos. Everyone is just trying to get a handle on what the fuck is going on. Makes you sleep well. Mm. Uh, Guys, let's start with the substance of Trump's response before we get to the politics. We remember, of course, when the Obama administration had to deal with the Ebola crisis. Where has the coronavirus response fallen short so far? Everywhere. (laughs) Every single place. I mean, Barack Obama in 2014 led the international Ebola response. They learned a lot. They set up a bunch of infrastructure, including staffing and people in the National Security Council. And, you know, you go down the list and Trump got rid of it because he's opposed to everything Obama does. On top of that... In times of crisis, being seen as a credible, truthful messenger is very important. And instead of telling the American people hard truths, they have spun it every which way they can to include putting Mike Pence, a guy who doesn't believe in climate science, who helped spur an HIV outbreak in the state of Indiana because of the the crazy position on needle exchanges, who wrote op-eds attacking fucking Mulan in charge of this thing. Like, he is a joke. This response is a joke. And honestly... Like the fact that we don't have a accurate, widespread testing uh, process today means that this virus is probably just all over the place and we have no idea because we can't test for it. So this has been a disaster. This is an incompetent president, an incompetent team. And that press conference Saturday was as chastened as I've ever seen Donald Trump. 
he clearly i don't know that he cares about people dying but i think he cares about getting it himself because he's a selfish prick and he cares about how bad this could be for him politically well that that seems to be the overriding concern yeah what do you think I, i think what captures to me that you know the danger of donald trump and what's actually happening uh you have donald trump get in front of the podium and wave around a piece of paper saying we're number one uh uh, and everything's going to be fine. Don't worry, because he's more worried about the Dow than yeah, he is about markets. about people. Um, and then one by one, you have uh, uh, Trump fucking cronies uh, uh, get up there and praise Donald Trump, say how good a job he's doing, while then slipping in. What Donald Trump did was buy us time, because they don't want to disagree with Donald Trump in front of everybody, but they want to let everyone know that things are about to get worse. Or you have Fauci and some of the other. Uh, serious, uh, nonpartisan career uh, experts coming to the podium, not wanting to dispute Donald Trump in front of Donald Trump, not because they're cowards, but because they have, they, I think these are serious people who want to make sure they're in the position to do the most good while trying to outline for everyone just how serious this could get, how you need to prepare, how you need to stock up, how this is a moment to be ready for what comes next. All sort of underneath, underneath all of those words, a warning that Donald Trump's rosy portrait is simply not accurate. It's sort of the perfect storm of everything that Donald Trump does poorly as president, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so there's, in, pre- in in preparation for something like this, there was the budget that consistently cut funding from the CDC. There was um, all of these positions in the government of that involved managing pandemics left open in the administration because Donald Trump can't fill any <laughs> can't fill a lot of vacancies in his administration and then there's the response itself and I think that the anecdote that was most telling that was in that Washington Post piece is when the CDC director went out a couple of weeks ago and said by the way this could get very bad and I just want to prepare all Americans Donald Trump's response to seeing that was getting enraged and wanting to tell everyone that it's fine because his overriding goal is to get elected Donald Trump cares about himself. He does not care about anyone else as much as he cares about himself. And he wants to get reelected. And so he wants the markets to become because he thinks that a recession could hurt him. And so if that is his goal and that's his incentive, that is good for his reelection. It is very bad, very, very bad for a response to a global pandemic because it means that he is not telling people the truth. He is going to not tell people when something is bad because he is too afraid that, you know, he's his poll numbers are going to go down. I mean. You know, uh, 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 surfaces (laughs) do not watch Fox News. Viruses do not watch Fox News. You know, it doesn't matter what rosy portrait Donald Trump paints. Uh, The reality of a spreading illness uh, is all that will ultimately matter, which is why it's, you know, yes, obviously Donald Trump only cares about his reelection. He's also an incredibly short term thinker, right? If he was... Well, if that's, there, it's, if, the short-termism really hurts in a crisis as well. Right. It, it hurts all of us. And it's this, it's, it's this crazy... Got to get through the news cycle. Got to get it. through the news cycle. But so, like, think about what that means. It, it, his lack of discipline and his narcissism and his desire to just get to the next day not only means he's, like, painting a rosy picture that may hurt all of us. It doesn't help him. It doesn't help him. It's only going to make matters worse for him. And, by, and look, Obama dealt with this, right? Because uh, of all people, Donald Trump back then was tweeting up a storm about how Obama has to close all the borders and stuff like that. And, you know, it was a lot of political heat on Obama. And what Obama did is talk to the experts and talk to the scientists. And they said, well, no, you know, closing the borders to, you know, to stopping all flights to Africa isn't actually going to stop it because we need to get health workers in there. We need to help people. And that's going to be. And it was the politically difficult thing for Obama to do. But he did it anyway because he knew it would help the crisis. Does anyone believe that Donald Trump will take any dis- make any decision around this crisis that is politically difficult? No, he's not a, <laughs> he's not a, a, a tough news guy. Um, 
In that press conference, Trump only got animated when he was talking about markets and the Fed yeah. and ways to juice the economy or the economy that is the, the economy as perceived by rich people who own stocks. Um, but he also had the nerve to chasten the press and chasten Democrats for being alarmist about coronavirus when that asshole in his Twitter feed in 2014 yeah. was like literally patient zero for spreading fear and hysteria about Ebola. He did enormous and very real damage back then. Yeah, he's still doing it. Um, you know, he's made himself the real victim of this global pandemic. Um, the main message from Trump and his allies has been that the coronavirus is just an excuse for Democrats and the media to take down the president. Here's a clip of Trump at a rally in South Carolina on Friday, and then comments from White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney and Don Jr. One of my people came up to me and said, Mr. President, they tried to beat you on Russia, Russia, Russia. That didn't work out too well. They couldn't do it. They tried the impeachment hoax. That was on a perfect conversation. They tried anything. They tried it over and over. They've been doing it since you got in. It's all turning. They lost. It's all turning. Think of it. Think of it. And this is their new hoax. We took extraordinary steps four or five weeks ago. Why didn't you hear about it? What was still going on four or five weeks ago? Impeachment. And that's all the press wanted to talk about. So that while real news was happening, and we were dealing with it in a way that I think you folks would be extraordinarily proud of, and that was serving the nation extraordinarily well, <laughs> the, the press was, 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 was covering their no, hopes of the day because they thought it would bring down the president. The reason you're paying so, you're saying so much attention to it today is that they think this is going to be what brings down the president. That's what this is all about. We've seen this play out for four years. Anything that they can use to try to hurt Trump, they will. Anything he does in a positive sense, like you heard from the reporter that was just suspended from ABC, they will not give him credit for. The playbook is old at this point. But for them to try to take a pandemic and seemingly hope that it comes here and kills millions of people so that they could end Donald Trump's streak of winning is a new level of sickness. You know, I don't know if this is coronavirus or Trump derangement syndrome, but these people are infected badly. I fucking hate that guy. Uh, the, I, the, the story of the Trump era is no matter what is happening, no matter how much they are winning or how much power they get, they are always the victim. Always. It is exhausting. It is so exhausting. They will never He's grow right. Up. Yeah, They'll someone definitely has better. a sickness, for sure. Yeah. It's, <laughs> um, you know. Probably you, you greaseball. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to get people killed, uh, you know. Uh, 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 MAGA hats are not a vaccine uh, yeah. and it won't protect you from I mean, an actual problem. His political allies like Rush Limbaugh are trying to downplay it, say this is just the common cold, you know, this is media hype. I mean, look, we all should just sort of be measured and try to be factual, but I don't think that mocking accurate reporting about a disease that could, a virus that could kill 2% of the world population if it goes to pandemic mode is uh, is overheated. No, they're doing this because they want any questioning or scrutiny of their response to be seen as purely partisan and political in nature. That's what they're trying to say. And I think what Democrats have to remember is like keep going. Like, you know, don't don't criticize them for things that you don't they don't need to be criticized for. But as this response unfolds, where there are gaps, where there are problems, where they have fucked up, we need to say so. We and we need to tie it. and we need to hammer it right to Trump. This is the job. Yeah, this Your job is, the, is to run the government in times of duress like this, and he is failing. And by the way, this is what people are concerned about and have been most concerned about for the last several years, yeah. is that Trump's chaos 
and his tweeting and his just like inability to focus on anything and care about anything but himself is going to lead to broader disaster. And, and we and this is a this is this is one of those cases. Yeah, and look, and and I think there's been this sort of sense like, wow, we've we you know, Trump has not had to manage, uh, uh you know, a crisis a crisis on this scale. Uh, but we Puerto have, Rico's the biggest. That's what I was about to say. I mean, yeah. you know, the one example we have, uh, or one of the examples we have, is Puerto Rico, and he mismanaged it, uh, uh, politicized it, uh, uh, treated those people to this day, <laughs> to still, this yeah. day, like objects, uh, uh, objects of his own sort of personal animus. American and ob- citizens, American citizens, and, and so you know, we know what Donald Trump will do in a crisis like this. I do think it is also incumbent upon Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren to demonstrate through this campaign the kind of leadership they will show in a moment of crisis like this. Don't forget Mike Bloomberg's three-minute ad on coronavirus last night. Uh, uh, yeah. But, you know, I, I think about 2008, you know, Barack Obama runs on a campaign of of change, of, of, of turning the page. But uh, ultimately, I think one of the reasons Barack Obama was able to become president is not because of what defined the primary, but because... Uh, outside of that messaging was a person people recognized as as intelligent, serious, smart, capable, reliable, and up to the task of managing serious problems. And so when the financial crisis hits, uh, uh, people felt that they could put their faith in him. No one knows what's going to happen with coronavirus or any of the other uh, 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 potential (laughs) problems that could happen between now and November, but it's incumbent upon our candidates to demonstrate by, by contrast just how much better a president they would be. Okay, when we come back, we will have Lovett's conversation with David Plough. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop Chef Quality Pots and Pans at MadeInCookware.com. He is President Barack Obama's campaign manager and senior advisor and the author of two books coming out on Super Tuesday, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump and Ripples of Hope, Your Guide to Electing a New President. He's also the host of the podcast Campaign HQ. David Pluff, welcome back to Pod Save America. John Lovett, it's great to be with you always. So we are recording this conversation on Monday. On Saturday, Joe Biden had a huge victory in South Carolina. On Tuesday, California, Texas, 12 other states uh, will hold primaries. Uh, also, Democrats abroad uh, will have a caucus, as will American Samoa. So let's start with uh, Biden. You know, he had to win. He did. In the days leading up to the South Carolina primary, there was this question as to whether or not Biden had possibly collapsed. It seems like the opposite has happened. What did you learn uh, from Biden's victory in South Carolina? Well, it's interesting, John. I mean, you know, my sense on this, and I've spoken about it publicly, was, you know, Biden was a relatively strong national frontrunner who had that firewall of South Carolina. And the question was, how poorly would he have to do in the first three states to test that? And, you know, going four or five in Iowa, in New Hampshire, I think uh, we got close to seeing how bad it could go. But, you know, he rebounded a little bit in Nevada. And, you know, he just didn't win South Carolina. He won it uh, in a dominating fashion, which is important both from a delegates and momentum. So I think the question will be, I'd be surprised in certainly the primaries through March uh, that he's not winning the African-American vote. The question will be, does he do it by the same margin he did in South Carolina? Uh, and he can, can he do that outside of the South? Um, but uh, so, so I think with Klobuchar dropping out, with Mayor Pete 
uh, dropping out. Not all that vote's going to go to Biden, uh, but things begin to clear up a little bit. Uh, and so I think if he can survive Super Tuesday, and that's an open question because it's a great day for Bernie from a delegate standpoint, um, I think he probably likes the rest of the calendar. So let's talk about Super Tuesday. What are you going to be watching for as results start coming in? Well, sadly, the most important in California, we may not know much on Super Tuesday <laughs> or the day after Wednesday. So to me, that's the important question really is, what kind of delegate uh, yield does Bernie Sanders get out of California? It's, it's almost impossible for me to see him not getting a significant one. Um, and so there's that. How many does he net? And you know, the important thing there is, is Joe Biden and, and maybe Michael Bloomberg, maybe Elizabeth Warren, are others viable above the 15% threshold statewide? I'll also be looking at the southern states, uh, you know, Alabama, Tennessee, uh, Virginia, North Carolina. Uh, what kind of net from a delegate standpoint is Biden able to uh, put on the table? And then, you know, Bernie's going to be viable in states like Minnesota uh, and Michigan. I'm sorry, Minnesota, and Massachusetts. Um, and I think there's a question whether Biden can get viable. So I'm just going to be looking at that. And so I think if, if Bernie Sanders ends the night and again, we won't know this for many, many days. But if the result of Super Tuesday is he's netting hundreds of delegates uh, because he dominated in California, no matter how well Biden does the rest of the way, I think that's going to be hard to catch. If Biden can keep that number down, you got to remember what's coming up in March. States like Georgia, states like Florida, um, I think states like Ohio, where I think Biden's going to do well. And in some of those states like Florida, he could net a tremendously large number of delegates. So uh, after the results came in in South Carolina, Mayor Pete ended his campaign. Tom Steyer ended his uh, campaign. We got word just before we recorded this interview that uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar is going to drop out and endorse Vice President Joe Biden. How do you think that changes the race? And do you think this happening, you know, in the three days between South Carolina and Super Tuesday will have an impact on the results tomorrow? I think it'll have a modest impact if that's important because, you know, the, the difference between Joe Biden being viable in California and not is probably the difference between him having a chance to be the nominee or not. So now a bunch of people in California have already voted early uh, for Amy and for Pete and for Steyer. But for Election Day voting, um, you know, I think Biden will benefit more from those candidates dropping out than Sanders. Not, you know, not 100 percent. Um, and the question will be, what does Bloomberg do? Bloomberg's going to get some votes and get some delegates on Super Tuesday, uh, presuming Biden does a lot uh, you know, more strongly than he does. I'd be surprised if Bloomberg lasts through the week. Uh, and so then you've got uh, Warren still in there, and she says she's got a convention strategy. Uh, as, as, as I think far-fetched as it is, it sounds like they're going to continue to try and just build delegates. So you know, then Biden's got a race I think he likes. But again, you know this, John, he's also got to perform well. Like yeah. He's got to fully maximize his South Carolina one, which means every interview, every speech, every debate, the fundraising, the organizing, like they up until Saturday night have not run the strongest of campaigns. And I think Bernie Sanders has run and will continue to run a strong campaign. So this isn't just like on paper. It's like, can he fully execute? But uh, things are falling about as uh, positively as you could have uh, hoped if you're Joe Biden. Uh, you know, you would have liked, I think, to finish in the top three uh, in Iowa. But, you know, and do a little bit better in Nevada. But he's now got the opportunity, I think, to have that one-on-one -on -one, uh, or at least one-on-two um, that probably numerically works to his benefit. But again, if he uh, falls too far behind uh, because of California on Super Tuesday, it may be too little too late. 
Let's talk about Joe Biden's performance for a second. You know, I, I feel like there was a lot of people who saw his speech in South Carolina and thought, wow, that's the the strongest argument he's made for his candidacy. It's the best speech he's given as a candidate. Uh, why do you think it has taken so long for that version of Joe Biden to emerge? And and do you expect that it will continue or do you think uh, do you think that there's just some limitations he has as a candidate that prevents him from executing on the message he delivered after his victory? Well, you've written a hell of a lot more speeches than I am. And as you know, there are some great long speeches, but for the most part, brevity helps, right? So it was strong and short. Um, I was worried there at the end when he started talking about some of the South Carolina elected officials, we were going off the rails a little bit, but he kept it tight. So here's what I'd say, you know, uh, and I was part of these uh, debate preps with Biden in both 2008 and 2012. So he had strong debates with Sarah Palin and Paul Ryan. The last one, as you remember, super high pressure because yeah. we bombed against Romney in the first debate. So now, is it is it just because it's eight years? Is it because he's better in one-on-one? I don't know. But if Saturday night was the exception to the rule, uh, I think he's going to have a very, very hard time becoming the nominee. But if somehow this is a new Biden, and, and listen, my suspicion, John, is one of the reasons Saturday was so strong is he knew how much he had riding on it and yeah. his team did. Like they can't make any more mistakes because uh, Bernie Sanders is nothing uh, to laugh about if you're Joe Biden. Um, he's a strong performer, strong candidate, got all the money in the world and all the volunteers in the world you'd want in a presidential campaign. So so that's really the test. Um, you know, and I was worried, actually, if you're if, for Biden, I was worried, like, would he Sunday morning in those morning shows, you know, be terrible because he was tired and coming off the high of Saturday. And, you know, he was fine. He survived them. So that'll be the question going forward. And, you know, you've got to look down the road in a couple of weeks. We're going to have a debate mm -hmm. uh, and it may be down to three people could be down to two people. Um, and, you know, the assumption I've heard from folks is, well, that'll be better for Biden because he struggles with a big crowd. But it also means Biden's going to be talking a lot more and 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 he's going to have to be more agile than he's been. Uh, and so I think the preparation for that debate uh, is going to be almost like a Manhattan project for the Biden team. Let's talk about Bloomberg for a second. Uh, you know, he has his whole strategy was based around Super Tuesday, they had sent so many signals that the only reason he got in the race was in part because of the weakness of Joe Biden. What do you what is Mike Bloomberg doing in the race at this point? Is it simply just a matter of getting your money's worth by staying in for Tuesday? Is there any path for Bloomberg to the nomination? Well, John, I thought I thought from the very beginning, I've spoke about this publicly, that for Bloomberg to actually be relevant he needed to have a bunch of things happen in the four, first four states that he didn't control, right? One of them being Biden completely falling apart, uh, meaning losing South Carolina, uh, and Mayor Pete not showing the ability to grow outside of his early coalition. So, um, you know, maybe he got one of those things, but he didn't get the second. So I think he's left now. He's performed poorly uh, in the two debates. Um, the, the man on the stage has not matched the man people are seeing on their TV screens. I think his ability to grow uh, into the African-American community, the Latino community is severely limited. Um, and so I'm sure having spent over $650 million, I mean, he has actually spent more on advertising than we spent in either of our two presidential campaigns. <laughs> you know, it's a remarkable statistic. And so I'm sure he doesn't want to get out before some votes get cast. And listen, he's going to get some votes and some delegates. Uh, but I assume he's like Mayor Pete did, like Amy Klobuchar did, like, can I be the nominee? 
And unless something really funky happens tomorrow night, Biden woefully underperforms and Bloomberg overperforms, I think it's going to be pretty clear there is no pathway there. Um, and, you know, my my assessment is, uh, you know, Bloomberg is someone who is a data driven person. Uh, and if there really is no path there post Super Tuesday, you know, I'd expect them to make the, the hard decision to get out. He can uh, take solace that uh, with Tom Steyer, they produced a pretty extraordinary stimulus package for local news stations across the country. Political consultants, you know, and political organizers. Consultants. I'm happy about that for the organizers. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the other thing, by the way. Steyer, you know, if Steyer hadn't been in the race in South Carolina, now not everything he got would have gone to Biden, but Biden's win probably would have been, you know, five to six points stronger if Steyer hadn't been in the race. So uh, let's talk about Warren. Just, I want to touch on uh, her campaign before we move on. Uh, one of the arguments they made out of Nevada was they saw weakness in Joe Biden, and they seem to be suggesting that they would be one of three and that the race would be fluid as a result. It seems as though Biden's good performance in South Carolina makes that argument tougher. Uh, what do you see as Elizabeth Warren's path to the nomination, or, or what do you think her role is in the uh, primaries moving forward? Well, her campaign set out a really interesting memo yesterday that was very candid and straightforward. So they're not suggesting that they can win the nomination because all of a sudden they're going to start winning a lot of states and get more delegates than the other candidates, simply saying that I think this leads to a convention strategy for them. Um, and, you know, it's got to be frustrating if you're her, her campaign supporters, like she's debated exceedingly well. She's a strong performer. She's had a really good fundraising month. But she hasn't been able to break out of kind of the mid-teens. And so the notion that if she stays in this race, and if she does, she will win some delegates along the way, that we're going to go to Milwaukee and neither Biden or Sanders have a majority of delegates. And we're going to be deadlocked, five, six ballots. And the convention's going to say, you know what? We're just stuck. So we're going to go down and give it to the person who's got the third or fourth amount of delegates. Like even in the like craziest Aaron Sorkin, uh, you know, screenplay that wouldn't happen. So I'm not sure what the play is um, post Tuesday, um, because I don't think it's credible for her uh, campaign to suggest that somehow they're going to roll into Milwaukee uh, with a pretty small number of delegates compared to the front runners uh, and become the consensus choice. I just don't see that happening. So um, I don't know whether that's true and they, they're just going to stay in no matter what or they're going to take stock after Tuesday. But um, that'll be fascinating to watch because, you know, it will affect um, there's so much attention, understandably, on Super Tuesday. But think about the states we have coming up, John, in the rest of March. We have Florida. We have Illinois. We've got Ohio. We've got Arizona. We've got Missouri. We've got Michigan. Big, big states with lots of delegates. And so her decision, I don't know yet how that, you know, there's, I think, a conventional wisdom that if she were to get out, that would help Bernie. And maybe it does. But like all these candidates, it's not like 100% of their vote goes to one candidate. Right. I mean, you know, even even with Mayor Pete, dropping out there, you know, the, the, the obvious thought is it goes to Biden, their fellow, you know, center left candidates. But at the same time, you look at the second choice polling and it's a bit more complicated than that. You know, people are more ideologically complicated. And at the same time, if the goal is simply to keep Bernie's, forget the delegate lead, but just the delegate count down, fewer candidates doesn't necessarily redound to Biden's benefit, right? Well, it, it just depends on the math, right? So I think that you know, we're talking about uh, in this conversation how important California is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Bernie Sanders is is likely not going to get over 40% in California. He might not even pass 35%. Uh, yet he's a delegate threat because we're talking about other candidates either not being able to get viable or too many of them. So 
My sense is when you talk about a Georgia, you talk about a Florida, you talk about Ohio, if this truly does get down to a two-person race between Biden and Sanders uh, in actuality, uh, then you know I think there's probably in more states more opportunity for Biden to get into the high 40s or low 50s than Sanders. That's my sense. So, um, you know, there may be some states like Washington State, I'd imagine, will be a very good state for Bernie. Uh, so maybe in a two-way race, he could rack up a pretty big margin. But I think generally, um, it's helpful to Biden to have this race clear out as quickly as possible. So we've talked a lot about Democrats fighting each other. I want to talk about the sort of big fight to come in Citizen's Guide, you know, the book you have coming out on Super Tuesday, you wrote, the nominee must win the economic argument with Donald Trump among voters who will decide this election. At this point, what do you feel is the best economic argument that Democrats can make against Trump? And uh, which of the candidates do you see are doing the best job of making that argument? Well, I think, you know, of course, we don't know where the economy is going to go with the coronavirus and its effect. I mean, we could be in a recession. Um, and I think that's a that's a, a in some ways, uh, a different argument, but it's connected to this, which is he sold America bill of goods. He said he was going to come in and fight for working people and everything he's done, his trade policies, his tax cuts, making it harder to get health care, uh, not believing in education investment has been to benefit uh, the wealthy. Uh, and we know that the average worker, while most people are employed, uh, are not making the kind of wages they want. Uh, and so I think that that is the case that has to be made every day uh, in every way. Um, and then, of course, though, we need an alternative that people buy into. Um, and, and that's going to be fascinating if this does get down in reality to a burden, a Biden, Bernie debate. You know, their prescriptions uh, are quite different. Uh, and so although they, they share more in common, you know, they both want to invest more in health care, in education. They both roll back the tax cuts uh, for the wealthy. Um, but, you know, Bernie's really talking about uh, an upheaval, which is attractive to a lot of people, particularly young people. I think Biden's talking about big and important changes, uh, but but less revolutionary. So we have to. So the way I think about it, John, is in in Manitowoc, Wisconsin or Tucson, Arizona or Asheville, North Carolina, we need a voter who's on the fence to say, you know, at the end of the day, the Democratic nominee is going to fight for people like me. I thought Trump might, but he's not going to. Then we also have to make an economic argument to people who aren't registered or may not turn out, that it matters to them who the president is. So this isn't solely about persuasion, but that's advertising, it's debates. But part of the message in my book is it's on all of us. If we see our nominee, uh, whether it's a, an interview we see on YouTube uh, or it's a commercial they put out uh, or some other piece of content, a great infographic about how they're going to fight for the middle class, we have to share it. I think we've all gotten into the routine of you know, using social media to amplify the outrage to Trump. Uh, and I think we have to do a better job of making the positive case for whoever comes out of this primary. So, I mean, it sounds like you're talking, you know, we've, we've had this conversation a million times that that we see in 2018, these sort of suburban, uh, uh, more moderate voters helping to deliver a Democratic majority in the House. At the same time, we see, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, bringing in millions of people into the process, uh, you know, new donors, potential new voters. Um, it seems like what you're saying is obviously <laughs> in November, we're going to need both of these pools of people to come out. Do you believe both Biden and Sanders have the capacity to kind of deliver both of those groups? Well, first of all, I'd say Sanders has shown the ability to activate new donors and volunteers, which is important. We don't have evidence yet about bringing new voters in. You know, I went through this in 2008. You're on the other side of that, right? Mm -hmm. Barack, can Barack Obama, is he electable? Can he win? 
And one of our pieces of evidence was, look what's happening in the primaries. There's new people coming in and a lot of young people. So we'll see. But yeah, I think both of, you know, Biden probably right now, you'd say might be a stronger candidate to some of the Obama Trump voters and uh, in blue collar and exurban areas, certainly in some of the suburban areas. Sanders is going to drive, you know, more interest and turnout potential among young people. So we don't have somebody who has the whole package, but that's where we all come in. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I spent some time in the book talking about the unification that's so important. A lot of people are just going to say, you know what, it's a hard fought primary uh, and I'm going to support uh, anyone who comes out of it. But a lot of people are going to be raw about this and we have to be thoughtful about this. And the winner's going to have to spend time putting this back together and listening to people. But it's on all of us to create that because, you know, in, in the book, as you know, I spend time um, and I really wanted to make sure people who weren't involved in politics that 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 much or at all understood this. So there is some remedial um, explanations of how do you win a presidential campaign? And going through the different types of voters, there's registration targets, there's turnout targets, there's true swing voters, and there's people who are going to flirt with third party. And we have to have a campaign that can speak to all of them. And then we as volunteers need to do our job because the math is such Trump is going to drive, I think, big registration and big turnout amongst his MAGA base. So the, the votes required to win, um, you can't say if we just drive turnout, it's enough. It won't be. We have to do enough amongst all those key cohorts to get to a win number uh, because the Trump campaign, if they're doing nothing else, they will try and identify and find and register and turn out every single person in these battleground states. Um, and, you know, look what George Bush did in 2004 in Ohio. John Kerry produced 500 to 600,000 more votes than Al Gore did in 2000. Everybody assumed if he got that many votes, he'd win and comfortably. But George Bush turned out every conservative uh, imaginable in Ohio. Trump's going to do the same thing. And I think if we don't think he is, we're going to be super unhappy on the night of November 3rd uh, because we're going to lose. So that means we need to reach all those folks. But you're right. We don't have a candidate who's naturally strong at all those things. So we kind of got to make we're the cavalry. We got to make up the difference. So for people listening, I think there's you know a lot of people listening to this that they may have a dog in the fight. But but they're where you are they're, They They just want to win and they want to do their part to make sure we're united and we get as many people out as possible. You know, what what are what are some of the things they'll learn in the book that they could do right now as we head into Super Tuesday and beyond to make sure they're doing their part to sort of keep the Democratic coalition together just as, as citizens? Well, first of all, it's make a plan. So, you know, if you live in a battleground state, are you going to become a precinct leader? If you don't live in a battleground state, maybe you'll uh, make a plan to travel there in the fall if you can. What kind of financial contributions can you make? Uh, do you feel like you're using your social media uh, networks uh, properly? Uh, do you need to sign up for them? Um, make sure that you and everyone in your circle, friends and family, even if they're annoyed when you ask, are you registered? Are you registered at the proper address? Um, create content. You know, if you have a neighbor uh, who voted for Trump last time and is now going to vote Democratic, whip out your phone and take a video of that and post it. Um, you know, that kind of content actually is more impactful than I think a lot of content that's produced professionally because it seems real because it is. So there's so much to do. So, so make your own plan. How are you going to use social media? Make sure your entire network that you have influence of, and we all have, you know, dozens and dozens of people that we can, without being asked by the campaign to do that. Do you want to get more involved? Again, if you're in a battleground state, we need you to. If you're not in a battleground state, you're going to travel there. You're going to make phone calls remotely. You're going to write postcards. So it's basically uh, taking stock of everything. And, and I think hopefully an important part of the book was I tried to address people's understandable 
sense that what is it like really like I, I go to a battleground state and I register two people. What does that matter? Well, if you think about it in aggregate, it makes all the difference in the world. So if, if you registered two people and 5,000 other people did it that weekend uh, in a state like Michigan, that's 10,000 people. Uh, and you do that course of the fall, that's way more than the win number. So you have to think about it in aggregate. Um, if you put, post something on, a, on Facebook or Instagram that's a response to a lie you see, maybe you will convince nobody in your no, own network. Everybody's settled, pro, against. But other people will see what you did, and that'll give them the idea and the confidence to do it as well. So the other thing is capture your volunteer activity. You know, do an Instagram story. Uh, you know, post about it so that, you know, it's not, you know, people, oh, you, you went out to Wisconsin or you were making phone calls today. And maybe five other people see that and decide to do it as well. So it's, it's really like we've got to take ownership of this uh, because they've got Fox, they've got Sinclair, uh, they've got the Russians, uh, they've got Trump's advantages of incumbency. They've got it all. Uh, what we have is us. And we basically have to aggregate up our own citizen army here to fight back. One last question. So wh- the, the other book you have coming out is called Ripples of Hope, and it's written for a younger audience. What are you hoping younger readers get out of it? Well, yeah, the, the premise of that book was, you know, you, you may not have a, a vote, but you have a voice and a really important one. So I, I certainly, nothing gets me more excited than to see uh, young people passionate about something. So if you're 15 or you're 13, um, you know, let's say you see your parents saying, I really want to defeat Trump. You know, you, you ask them, what are we doing about it? Like, are you posting on Facebook and Instagram? Or are we going to Arizona to, to volunteer? Have we contributed yet? Uh, you can give your parents idea, create your own content. This election's about their future, but you know, much more than mine. So create content about why you want a president who believes in climate change or why you want a uh, president who's going to make it easier uh, to go to community college or college. Um, and also, you know, I spend some time explaining things like the Electoral College and battleground states so that kids who are following this election may have a better understanding of what a presidential campaign is and what goes into it. But uh, listen, I think if we can get millions of kids out there really pushing uh, uh, using their own uh, talents, uh, but also, you know, putting pressure on their older relatives and friends to do everything they can. Think about how powerful that will be. And, you know, that excitement, I saw that with, you know, in the Obama campaigns, the fact that young people and not just people who could vote were excited mattered. It, it really created interest and excitement amongst older relatives and friends who then would go the extra mile. So that's the idea. And it's in the same spirit, which is this is the most important election, if not in American history, certainly in our lifetimes. It's going to be close. And we're running against someone who we've never had anybody this obsessed with their reelection than Donald Trump. And he's got all the powers uh, of the presidency and maybe powers of foreign capitals uh, at his disposal. Uh, and we have to meet that moment with massive citizen engagement. Small, you know, uh, activities, large activities, you know, even somebody who says, you know what, I can I'm only going to spend four hours a week. Awesome. Uh, or four hours a month. Awesome. It doesn't have to be people who are putting in, you know, 20 or 25 hours a week to have a difference. So but but we need kids, I think, hopefully to be part of that, too. So they're holding us all accountable uh, and also using their own creative talents uh, for the greater good. David Pluff, thanks for joining us. John Lovett, always good to be with you, my friend. Thanks to Plot for joining us today. Uh, we'll see you guys tomorrow night. Live stream, youtube.com slash Crooked Media. And then uh, the three of us and Dan will be doing a pod on Wednesday about the Super Tuesday results. Might as well just sit in front of this fucking microphone for the yeah, next uh, five weeks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. We'll see you later. 
Pod Save America is a product of Crooked Media. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papa Dimitriou, Caroline Reston, and Elisa Gutierrez for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. 